Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hey Trevor, I heard you ride a bike. Is that true? Uh, sometimes, maybe. Do you ever go for runs? Uh, yes, and they are painfully slow. I bet they are. I, I can only imagine. you ever swim? No. No, I actually did a triathlon a few years ago and discovered I was faster walking along the bottom oh, of the pool than swimming. What about sinking? Do you, do you ever sink? Well, that was part of walking along <laughs> the bottom of the pool now, wasn't it? There you go. Hey, well, it doesn't matter whether you're a runner, a cyclist, a swimmer, a triathlete. You want to head over to Health IQ's website. They're a life insurance company that specializes in healthy, active people like you. They're able to give us favorable quotes on life insurance, and they have a special website just for Fast Talk listeners. That's www.healthiq.com slash fasttalk. While you're over there, you can submit race results, screen grabs of your Strava or Map My Run account, or any other proof you have that you are indeed a regular cyclist, runner, or fit person, and you'll get a better quote. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, except I think if I put my runs or my swims up there, they're going to be like, this guy's on his deathbed. <laughs> oh, boy. We're not giving well, him insurance. Just, just put the cycling results up there. <laughs> that I can do. Welcome to another episode of Fast Talk. I'm Chris Case, managing editor of Velo News, joined as always by the beating heart of Fast Talk, Coach Trevor Connor. Today, we're doing something a bit different on Fast Talk, something we've never done, in fact. We're taking on a hot topic that's stirred up a bit of controversy. Several listeners have asked us to weigh in with our thoughts, and so we've decided to jump in, give our listeners what we want, and do it in our own way, which focuses on the science. First, a bit of the backstory. Recently, Sufferfest, developers of a popular online training system, declared on their website that, quote, FTP is dead. For years, this increasingly popular estimate of our threshold power has been used to determine our training zones, to craft our workouts. Sufferfest is basically saying that FTP isn't sufficient to give the full profile of an athlete, and as a result, many athletes weren't training right and weren't using the right zones. With the guidance of Neil Henderson at Apex Coaching, Sufferfest has started using four metrics to create a more complete profile of each athlete, and that, that includes FTP, sprint power, anaerobic capacity, and VO2 max power. Simple enough, we've all heard those terms before. However, the claim that FTP was dead and the announcement of the use of these four metrics sparked a big debate that spilled into user forums like Fast Twitch. A well-respected pioneer in the industry, Dr. Andy Coggin, pointed out that he had been using these metrics for over a decade. The debate got heated, it got personal, it got a bit ugly. Well, we wouldn't be here without Dr. Coggins' pioneering research, and Neil has been a big part of defining modern coaching. Let's set aside their differences for a moment. We can still see there's a great scientific question here. Is FTP dead? So in today's episode, we're going to focus exclusively on the science behind this debate. Here's what we'll address. First, FTP. With the simple tools available to us, FTP was a bit of a necessary bedfellow for, for determining zones and training, but those tools are getting increasingly sophisticated and customizable to the individual. So the question is, now that we can create far more sophisticated rider profiles, is the old FTP-based model antiquated? Second, 
if FTP is no longer enough, what's the best way to determine a rider's profile? Is it the four metrics used by Henderson, which amount to your best 20 minute, five minute, one minute, and five second wattages? Is it something more like the continuous curve used by Training Peaks that shows your best wattages from one second to five hours? Or are we losing that important sense of feel by getting too focused on numbers? Finally, for those of you who think these metrics are the way to go and that they work for you, we'll talk about the best way to find your numbers. Do you need to do regular time trials? Do you look at race data? Or can you determine them through regular training? We'll focus in particular on a one-hour test developed by Henderson over years of trial and error that's now at the center of the Sufferfest system. To help us with this discussion, as always, we've brought in several special guests. From Apex Coaching, which partners with Sufferfest, Neil Henderson and Matt Casson join us. Note that Neil had to leave a little early during the recording, so we'll only have him for part of the conversation. To offer another perspective, we're joined by a Fast Talk regular, Frank Overton of Fast Cat Coaching. Frank worked with Dr. Coggin and Training Peaks in their early development days. We'll also hear briefly from Dr. Inigo San Milan from the University of Colorado Sports Medicine and Performance Center and Dr. Stephen Chung, a physiologist who helped develop a new training tool called Exert. We invited the folks at Training Peaks to join us. Unfortunately, we never heard back from them, so they are not on this podcast. So with that, let's make you fast. Oh, one last thing. Much of this podcast was recorded while I was terribly ill, losing my voice. So I apologize for that deep, gravelly voice you're going to hear. That's actually me. All right, let's get started. The question that's been raised and that we were asked about is a lot of software in the past has really just kind of used FTP and said, here's your FTP number, which is your, this is your functional threshold. It's usually defined as, as what's the, the power you can hold for an hour. And that really defines who you are as a cyclist. The debate is whether that's sufficient, whether there's more attributes for a cyclist or for an athlete that you need to look at to get the, the full profile? I, I think there's, in the literature, Coyle et al. published a paper maybe 20 years ago, the single greatest determinant of cycling performance is an athlete's threshold. And so translated, this is probably pre-power meters, but translated over to power meters, we can find their threshold. Therefore, that's the single greatest determinant of performance. And so that's like performance as a 10,000-foot aerial view. And it's very simple. It's easy to ask athletes to do that sort of testing. It's repeatable. It leaves a very little variance in terms of athletes, you know, doing something different or kind of messing up the test. And, I mean, cycling science from power meters, we're 15 years in. I mean, that's about when the sports science and all these awesome things from power meters have come into play like 20 years tops really. So FTP is just, it's, it's a way to get it out there, get a, uh, get zones and train uh, with precision and achieve precise physiological adaptations. And then also it's a way to measure improvement. So you test, test in November, test in March, compare the two numbers, did the training that you did in between work. Did the athlete gets faster? And it's very simple. I mean, you know, the Cat 3 rider in Pennsylvania can interpret that results. So 
I think that's part of the reason why it's been so popular and well used. And Neil, would you say that that is too simple? I'm going to say that to some degree, I agree with the aspect that FTP and, and this sustainable power is extremely important. Having spent over 12 years of my career working at Boulder Center for Sports Medicine, which is now CU Sports Medicine Performance, conducting thousands of tests with athletes from very novice levels up to the best in the world, um, there is a value in that. But when we look at actual real-world performance, different types of cycling events clearly require demands that are not specifically driven to FTP. I can go to a track cycling model in a couple different very specific events. Again, even if you don't like the track cycling model, we can go to road cycling and even in a road race, it's not an FTP contest. The separations that occur, that occur are done well in excess of FTP and those are greater predictors of actual race performance than would be that just sustainable FTP power. Like Frank was saying, there's the paper came out back in the day and it said the single greatest determinant of performance across basically all disciplines is FTP. There's the the general sort of, don't want to say misguided, but the sort of misconception that if you want your FT, FTP to be high, you only should be doing FTP-based workouts. There's There's other ways you can increase your FTP other than just doing really FTP-centric training. And Getting that higher FTP on race day is important. You're doing a 40K TT or you're doing the hour record. Like on that day, what you can do for an hour, that's going to determine how well you go. But getting that hour of power as high as possible, it's going to take a different route for different people. Not two people are going to, to get their best result on that day. They're not going to do the same training. Is it worth at this point going into a little bit more depth on some of these terms that we throw around? You've got people out there that have access to labs and they can get a threshold in a lab setting. You've got other people that don't have that at their disposal and they need to go out on the road and have a test on the road, determine their FTP. Maybe just briefly describe what are those two? Are they only approximates of each other and how much danger is there in putting too much stock in one or the other of those numbers? I'll jump into this one because that has always been one of my concerns with FTP is how often I see people come up with a number that, that really isn't their number. FTP is an approximate of your threshold that would be tested in the lab. And even in the lab, there, there's different arguments over uh, how you define threshold. So there's MLSS, maximal lactate steady state, uh, which you do with a lactate curve. If you use a, a ventilation system, there, it's called VT2, and, and I'm not even going to try to explain to you how exact the, the curves that are used to, to define that. But you're basically trying to find this physiological breakpoint where clearly your body goes to be able to maintain some sort of homeostasis to no longer be able to maintain that. And that is a physiological point. The issue I've always had with FTP, which is just what's the average power for an hour, it's an approximate of that physiological breakpoint, but it's not perfect. And I think with every athlete, it's going to be different because if some people go out and do an hour test, they might be a really good time traveler and actually be able to, to average higher than what's their, their true physiological threshold. Where somebody who's not very good at time trialing, 
they might be 20 watts below what they would actually get in the lab. And you can't tell that just by having them go out and do the test. And that's always been my concern. So how do you, you address that? Or do you think I'm full of it? Uh, again, the, the variability between what we see out in the field and in the lab can clearly be quite different from person to person looking at the type of effort though you have them uh, do. So again, the, the, the one standard of a, of a one hour average power uh, for somebody who is very well trained often is closer to what we might see in the lab where it is that uh, more significant change of ET2 or uh, what I came up with a, a one millimole increase in lactate followed by a greater than one and a half millimole um, was the standard that we used at the, the Boulder Center for Sports Medicine Lab with four minute long stages uh, progression in a standard lactate test. But for somebody who is not well-trained, one hour power is going to be in excess of that maximal sustained output because they do not have the absolute fitness to maintain that point for long enough. So the one hour duration is too long for a lot of our average uh, fitness riders that are not, again, trying to go up the output. It doesn't sound like any of you are saying that, that we should be scrapping FTP, but you, you do raise a, a really interesting question is when you're figuring out that FTP, what is the best way to do it? Is, is it in a race? Is it, do you go out and do a field test? Do you need to go into a lab to get that number? I like to do the 20-minute test, super standard. It's very easy for an athlete to interpret and to execute without messing it up. The gold standard is 60-minute max power, you know, 40K TT. But here in the United States, very few athletes do a 40K TT. Um, if they do, and I know that, I'm going to just say, oh, I'll get his threshold when they do that 40K. And, you know, they got a number on their back. They're motivated. That's going to be really good data. You cannot ask an athlete to go out and replicate that in training by themselves. Very few athletes can do that. So rather than expend that mental match, this is a little bit of sports psychology, but rather than expend that mental match in November or in February, I'll save that and just ask them to do a 20-minute test. And I only have my athletes test, do two 20-minute tests per year. Because again, that is also a mental match that I want to have them save. So I, I use this term mental match and I should explain it. But if you have a goldfish ball bowl full of marbles and <laughs> that represents all their mental energy for an entire season, you know, you do a 40, you ask them to do a 60 minute max test on their own. You might as well just go grab a handful of marbles and toss them into the gutter. But like a 20 minute test is like one marble, you know, doing a VO2 workout. That's a marble. Tabitas on one marble. But, you know, there's like 500 marbles, you know? Every time you do a stage race, that's like, that's a bunch of marbles. So they have a limited amount of mental energy. And so what I'm trying to do is protect, I'm trying to save them mentally so that they can expend that energy in racing. So that's why I'm going to do two tests a year. And then after, that's in the off season. So like right now in November, and then maybe once again, preseason. And so I like 20 minute tests for field tests because a lot of the time trials here in the United States and hill climbs are in and around 20 minutes. So now you can compare apples to apples. I mean, there might be a gala apple to a Fuji apple, but it's pretty close. And, you know, so then now you got all these data points all throughout the year that are comparable, 20 minutes. And, and then once the race season is underway, once they've got some race data, then you start looking at individual power outputs when they went 
full gas in a race, like five minutes in a in a crosswind or five minutes in on a hill or one minute like at the up the Morgo Bismarck, things like that. And so I'm always I'm, I like I, I test I don't like test for the 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 five one and in five minute powers. I, I use race data for that. So FTP gets us started, and I'm a huge proponent of building a base. I love that number for building a base because therefore it gives you your sweet spot zones. And then once you have your sweet spot zones, you also have like zone two and tempo and you're off, you're ready to build that huge base. And so that's what I'm primarily concentrating on. And then we get to the race season and then you're getting all these good data points from like, like full gas group rides or really hard points in a race. So some, some differences in how we do things is we do a lot more frequent testing um, evaluating the effectiveness of what we're doing and adjusting and adapting training schedules relative to those responses. We also find that there's a, a confidence gain in the athlete who knows that what they are doing is making them stronger when we are looking at those repeating tests every month or so. Um, so we do, again, with much more frequency. The other aspect is, and again, a, a difference in opinion of, you know, you only have so many marbles. Well, I want a bigger uh, I want a bigger fish tank uh, for all my marbles. So my athletes know the anxiety of testing. I know that they get stressed out, but they learn how to manage that. When they go into a race, they know how to manage those stressors and anxiety. They know what they're capable of when it does come down to a time trial. It's not like, a, well, geez, eight weeks ago I did that. I hope I'm close now, or maybe uh, that was my best ever. We know that more frequently what they've done and what they're capable of doing so that they can walk into that race with that kind of confidence and, and then be able to execute the task. Just going to say, having done your, having tried your test, uh, the fact that you're doing that to people every month, I'm going to say Frank is a much nicer coach. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't get paid to be nice. There you go. <laughs> Results talk. <laughs> so, you know, it's okay though. I try to make up with it otherwise. Trevor, just like you were saying that, you know, in the lab setting, there's different ideas of what measurement point you take for FTP. The the same applies when you're looking at testing out on the road. Oh, this is Mac, by the way. Taking 95% of your 20-minute power might sync up really well with a lab test going to your ventilatory threshold, but it might not sync up well to the protocol that Neil uses or the protocol that Frank might use in a lab setting. So it gets really difficult to, you know, say that lab-based results versus road-based results when both of them, both of them, you know, are, there's different ways to measure them and each of them is going to give you slightly different results. You know, the, the idea of threshold is it's a steady state effort. Anytime you're doing a max effort to failure, if you're pacing a 20 minute effort, so you've got nothing left at the end, that's just letting water into your boat so that you sink right when you get to the end. That in itself is not really a steady state. And the amount of water someone can let into that boat varies from person to person. So they might, right, they both might come out of a 20 minute effort with a 300 watt average. But if one of them is getting more of that power more anaerobically or you could say less efficiently, then you can't really say that their steady state power is gonna be the same because they're not producing that power in the same manner. Some athletes, FTP, I think is like 5% less than what they can do for 20 minutes. But some athletes that are anaerobically gifted or very strong, they're like 10% less than what they, you know, than their 20 minute power. 
And it just depends. It's individual. Like, and when I'm, this is the analysis of the data. You say, okay, this guy can make really good one minute power. He can win races by, you know, a one lap attack. He's got a strong anaerobic capacity. So I'm going to put his FTP at 10% less than his 20 minute maximum field test. Whereas he, whereas like a, you know, an, an age-based master's racer that's just in it for endurance, they're more like 5% less. They don't have a well-developed anaerobic system that can derive power from the anaerobic system to contribute to the, the power output in the 20-minute test. So there's some interpretation to the test based on um, the strengths and weaknesses of the rider. And that's something that just comes with experience as a coach? Yes, but I mean, it's open knowledge that the 20 minute test is, you know, five to 10% greater than your 60 minute power right. from 98% of the population, I think. The other thing is, it's you got to be really careful when you're analyzing 20 minute power from race data because there's normalized power and there's average power, and, and you got to be super duper careful. The anaerobically gifted athletes can bust the heck out of that because they can go really hard and recover really quickly and they can, it's kind of, I call it a, they call it a normalized power buster and their normalized power is way higher than their 20 minute average power. So when you're interpreting the data and analyzing it, you got to take that into account if you're going to correlate that back to their FTP. But I just like to have multiple data points from 20 minute max normalized power. And you get that when they go out and slam a group ride every Saturday. The normalized power busters. Um, that's something that speaks to me as, as I was a, an anaerobic athlete in from my early days, pole vault, javelin, discus were my forte events in track and field. I was a sprinter in swimming and I chose to do triathlon, which is the exact opposite of the spectrum doing Ironman races and everything. So I did not work with my own innate physiological strengths. I had to develop endurance and learn things, but I have plenty of examples of that normalized power being well in excess, even for an hour, normalized power, 15% greater than the maximum one hour power ever sustained, even with decades of professional racing experience in endurance contests that when I hear the normalized power busting out, you know, the, that, that happens, I've seen it a lot. And I've also worked, I was a strength and conditioning coach with, with an AHL hockey team and have worked with NHL hockey teams and players and know that across the continuum of the type of people that we work with, not just the endurance world, that across sport and even our general population that we work with at the Sufferfest, we see a much bigger variety in, in humanity than the, the typical steady state endurance uh, person. So we've tried to really look beyond that one point to, to try to understand each athlete's respective strengths and weaknesses and be able to then address them in training. So I started to look at some, some different things that we could look at as well as that continuum of not just sustained long-term power, but also these different energy systems. And so using what was kind of out there at the time of, of five second, five minute, 20 minute and one minute where there were some absolute power tables developed looking at power and watts per kilogram and uh, even kind of associating those with different categories of racer um, was something that we started to look at and actually just doing that all in one single round to then correlate that then to what we were seeing in the laboratory. Let's take a quick step back and just for some of our listeners who are wondering about this, what we're, we're talking about these different peak powers or, or this power profile. The idea here is 
I wish I could show you a visual, and there, there, you, if you just do a search online, you can see it. But it's the idea of what is the best five-second power you can put out? What's the best one-minute power you can put out? What's the best uh, five-minute, 20-minute? And you can actually just extend that all the way out to five hours, and, and there, I'm sure we'll discuss at some point, should you be taking every single time point along there? That creates a profile of, or the theory is that creates a profile of you as an athlete. So, for example, you might have two athletes that both have the same FTP. Let's say their FTP is 340 watts. But one is much more of a time trialer, and their five-second power might only be 600 watts, where the other one might have an amazing sprint, and, and their five-second power is 1,200 watts. If you only look at the FTP, you're not going to know that. When you look at these different points, you're going to see yeah, they might be able to sit there going steady pace together, but that one person's going to blow the other one out of the water when it comes down to the final sprint. And you need to know those different aspects uh, of the rider to really understand both how to train and, and if you're a coach, how to coach that person. Is that kind of an accurate description, you'd say, of power profiling? Yeah, that, that explains it, that we're looking from basically you know, short-term through long-term and, and in between. The, the other significant thing there is is looking at the relationships between them. Like you were saying, someone's FTP compared to sprint power. The same thing goes when you look at someone's 20-minute power versus their 5-minute power. As Frank had mentioned, like anaerobically inclined people, you can kind of, to a sense, fake a 20-minute test because you're using that anaerobic ability you have to produce some of that power. So again, if you just have two people doing 20-minute tests and that's the only effort they're doing, you don't get a sense of, of where that power is really coming from because you might have two people with 20 minute power 300 watts but if one of them can sustain 390 watts for five minutes and the other can only do 345 for five minutes then okay clearly one of them you know their max aerobic power is, is higher the other person with the lower five minute power basically they're just working closer to their max ceiling so they're more efficient they can sit at a much higher you know much higher to their ceiling than, than the other guy can. But what you get out of that other than just those numbers is you know that, okay, if this person's already maxed out close to their ceiling, their FTP isn't gonna go up if you just have them do threshold and tempo efforts because that ceiling is what's limiting them at that point. So that's when you say, okay, look, based on this person's result, their five minute being low relative to 20, then you can say, okay, this person needs to focus on increasing their five minute power before they can, even if all they wanna do is increase their FTP, then you can still let them know that, okay, if you want to increase your FTP, your training needs to be focused on this other area that's holding you back. So you're talking about four durations for, for identifying the rider. One of the pioneers of this whole concept was, was a, a researcher named Pino who had 12 durations. I know in the newest version of WKO4, they now have a continuous curve. Let's look at every single time point. So I guess that's my question is why four versus 12 versus uh, continuous versus let's see how you're performing in races and, and, and look at where your weaknesses and strengths are in the races. Which is the best direction? Why did you land on four? Why did you land on focusing on races? From, from a one perspective, there's actually a relationship again back to lab testing and looking at energy systems. The, the type of energy that we can produce from that immediate ATP, creatine phosphate, and neuromuscular coordination aspect, that peak neuromuscular power, is going to be what we're looking at with five seconds. 
even if you go to an anaerobic marker test, which is a, a, our classic lab-based anaerobic capacity test as a wind gate, your first five seconds is peak power. So that exists. The 30-second power on anaerobic capacity is what, again, has been used in that, that wind gate test. We use a one-minute duration as we're fully depleting, really, that, that system, ATP and CP going down to zero. There's another really cool lab test that's horribly heinous as well. It's a two-minute uh, maximum accumulated oxygen deficit. If you think a one-minute all-out test is horrible, try two minutes. It's a lot worse. So we, we came back to the one minute. So somewhere between that 30 second wind gate and that two minute MAOD lies the one minute effort. And again, with the, with the, the power profiling tables from Hunter Allen and Andy Coggin, Hey, people are familiar with that one minute and there's some relative values out there. We'll go with it. Five minute power is really pretty close to that power at VO2 max. So again, the ancient classic, if you go way back to looking at maximum oxygen consumption, which we know has some relationship to endurance performance, but is not, again, the only thing. Um, again, Coyle may, may tell you that threshold is, which we also then measure via that 20 minute with the preceding five minute effort to look at that. So those four values come back to, from a physiological sense, describing the individual's energy uh, production capacities, as well as relationships really close to what we would have seen in laboratory testing situations. And we then use the individual's expressed capabilities from that testing to prescribe the intervals throughout all the different types of workouts, rather than just using that single point metric. So we okay. want it to fit better. So it's really basing each of these is looking at a different energy system. Yeah. And you're trying to target in on those energy systems. So just out of interest, the one counterpoint that, that I might offer is you look at the research of somebody like Steven Seiler, who says, really, there, physiologically, there's only two breakpoints. So there's that anaerobic threshold or what we're, we're calling FTP. And there's a lower one, which is aerobic threshold or what they would call VT1. And he really doesn't differentiate anything above anaerobic threshold. So you're kind of touching on one of those. Yeah. Uh, and I notice you don't even touch on the aerobic threshold. Correct. So here's a, a researcher who's picking up a lot of steam that would say, no, it really is a lot more about FTP and you're actually missing out on, on, a, on a key metric. How would, would you respond to that? Uh, in response to that, I would say I work with individuals who are most interested in their performance and the outcomes are not in any way associated with a VT1 and aerobic steady state in any of these contests of even in Ironman is not determined by VT1. So majority of who we work with then are competing in much shorter events. And it is the separations that occur from a, an effort in the basically anywhere from one, two, three seconds to five minutes that typically make the difference. Though, again, there are some relationships to something like the hour record with Evelyn Stevens or Rowan Dennis, where we care about that power that could be sustained right. for one hour at an absolute though their training was not exclusive to that threshold. And again, as a secondary uh, follow-up to that, a guy like Taylor Finney, who at age 18 was competing at the Olympics in the individual pursuit, we were focused on power at VO2 max, basically a four, just over four minute effort. And all of the standard training that was out there and recommendations were based on FTP and workouts of doing two by 20 minutes never looked like anything he ever did. He was setting American records. He was winning medals. World record uh, for junior in the 3K, he won two elite world championships in the individual pursuit, silver medal in the kilo with training that looked nothing like anything based on threshold. And so, again, from the practical and applied side, 
FTP to me meant very little with an athlete who was training 10, 12, 14 hours a week as a teenager at the top of the sport. Just to show you that even the top scientists in the field don't always agree, we caught up with Inigo San Milan, director of the University of Colorado Sports Medicine and Performance Center, where Neil used to be the head coach. San Milan agrees that FTP alone is not the answer, but unlike Neil, feels that there are key measures below threshold. Interestingly, while Neil offers a very race performance-oriented justification, San Milan focuses much more on the critical physiological systems behind performance. So, is FTP a good metric for determining a rider's training zones? No, not at all. Uh, and uh, I think that some people are saying that maybe FTP is dead or is uh, 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 is dated. But I, I think in the first place, it was never. Uh, an accurate way to look at different training zones. Uh, FTP is just that. It's just FTP. That's uh, that effort you can sustain for a given amount of time. Some people talk about 40 minutes or one hour, whatever they want to talk to. That 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 that's your specific uh, uh, metabolic intensity for that specific time. But uh, I mean, you cannot uh, estimate training zones based on percentages of FTP. Then we're 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 doing the same mistake as doing uh, the the the, the two hundred twenty minus your age formula and percentages of the maximum heart rate, right? We know that that doesn't work very well. So the FTP, uh, in my opinion, is not an accurate way to estimate training zones. So, what measures do you use to get a rider's profiles and zones? I understand you like to look at some th- sub threshold metrics. Mm-hmm. Yes, you're right. So, so that's the thing of uh, using FTP uh, to uh, calculate intensities or above that. Uh, we're just describing the uh, the high intensity side of it. And uh, in my opinion, I, I try to put a whole metabolic map of what are the metabolic responses to exercise at a wide range of intensities. So, for example, uh, at uh, FTP or above, the muscle fibers recruited are the glycolytic muscle fibers, which are, are the type 2 fast twitch muscle fibers. Uh, those ones are the ones uh, required to, pr- to, to, uh, to, to produce energy and be efficient at that intensity. Uh, they use a lot of glucose. They're glycolytic. Uh, chances are that at your FTP or above, you're, you're going to burn zero grams of fat. All you burn is uh, glucose. Uh, the byproduct of glucose is lactate is the mandatory byproduct of glucose with or without oxygen. You're always going to produce lactate whenever you use glucose. Now that that lactate um, uh, has to be cleared out, and the, the faster the better, obviously. So the place where you clear out the lactate is uh, mainly in the slow twitch muscle fibers, basically in the mitochondria of the slow twitch muscle fibers. So having a more holistic or integrative approach to training. You need to have robust energy systems. So you need to be, in my opinion, you know, more comprehensive than just focus on the high intensity side of it. So for us to calculate training zones, uh, it takes, uh, uh, again, that, that more uh, comprehensive approach of what's the metabolic response to exercise. So uh, as I mentioned, to, to, to improve the capacity of those slow twitch muscle fibers, you need to stimulate them specifically. In the same manner that you stimulate specifically the glycolytic muscle fibers or the or the uh, slow t- or the or the fast twitch. 
So for that, we, 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 when we do metabolic testing, we look at different inflection points from metabolic uh, um, uh, signature or, 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 um, or points, you know. So we see, for example, what's the exercise intensity at the one you burn the most fat. We, we calculate fat burning, fat oxidation in grams per minute throughout the entire test. Another thing that we see, what is the crossover? Uh, from carbo- from fats to carbohydrates. So as exercise intensity increases, you start burning more glucose and you burn less fat uh, to an extent that uh, you don't burn fat anymore and uh, you burn everything out of glucose. So there's a crossover point where you start burning more glucose over fat. And that crossover point, and we measure that as well. We also look at different inflection points of lactate uh, the first inflection point, second inflection point, et cetera. So with all these parameters, we have been able to to put together a very good, robust method to establish individualized training zones uh, for the entire range of intensities from your zone one to all the way to your zone six. Let's get back to the question of these four metrics of five second, one minute, five minute, and FTP power and how long they've been part of the training zeitgeist. I'm right now looking at uh, an older book. This is uh, Jack Daniel's Running Formula. It's actually one of my favorite training books. Written in 1998. And I'm actually looking at a pyramid that he created that I found really, really interesting because in the pyramid, he basically says there are four key training levels. He has your threshold, which would be the, the running equivalent of about that FTP. Uh, he has your VO2 max. He refers to this very high level as reps or economy, um, but that's kind of your short uh, one, two-minute type effort. He doesn't have that all-out sprint, but this is track and field athletes. That's probably a little less important. Uh, he also talks about marathon pace. I found all this really interesting because runners, long before we had power meters, long before we had heart rate monitors, understood this idea of different paces. So they would talk about their marathon pace. They would talk about their 10-kilometer pace, their one-mile pace. And they all had this innate sense of what was that pace they could hold for that given length of time. Actually, right in the same book, I really found this fascinating. They have a graph showing uh, a lactate profile and then some of these other metrics. And they have it graphed on running velocity in meters per minute. And if you actually... Fortunately, we can't show this in the podcast, but you look at the bottom row, it has, so the the running velocity goes 230, 250, 270, 290, 310, 330. This particular athlete, they hit their threshold around 330 and their VO2 max around 390. If I erased running velocity and wrote power down there and said this was a, a cyclist test, you'd believe this. This is actually what a, about a Cat 2 level rider would look like. This was all 1998. This was pre-really anybody using power meters. This was, uh, yeah, we were using heart rate monitors at the time, but, but this goes pretty far back. And the reason I'm bringing all this up is something I have always believed and was taught myself is really good athletes and really good coaches with experience and time find what works. And so with this idea of these multiple metrics, is this necessarily a a really new idea or is this really landing on what the the best athletes and and you guys as experienced coaches has just found that works? Well, I can tell you, this is Neil. Uh, I can tell you that uh, my background as a cycling coach uh, 
is actually kind of secondary to my first coaching background, which is in swimming. And so swimming, if you think about it, uh, the time is ultimately how performance is measured. We would gauge our training efforts even 30 years ago back to the capacity that could be uh, performed for the short, middle, and slightly longer efforts, really about a 30-second, about a two-minute, and about a five-minute effort where, where much of our pacing was with a little bit then in that kind of steady state, kind of 1,500-meter sustained output. So I personally don't think that we're doing anything extraordinarily new in cycling by looking at this short and, and middle and longer term power output, looking at these different levels with respect to the same thing like in running. So we can look at true speed like 100 meter, a one mile pace, a 400 meter and say a 5K or something like that in a very similar way to judge the effort relative to these different energy systems. Now, Frank, you've been, I mean, this has been part of the software you've been using for, for years. You've certainly been looking at these profiles, and I'm assuming as a coach you've been, that's part of how you look at your athletes, correct? Correct. You know, the, the power profile table, I mean, I've had that spreadsheet for 15 years. The Coggin and Allen, you know, came up with all, it's just like a, a bunch of data points from world-class cyclists down to, you know, amateurs. And so, you know, you begin working with an athlete, they'll tell you, oh, I'm a field sprinter or I want to do road racing. And most people know what they're good at, like their strengths and weaknesses. That's pretty simple. Like, like a good example of the relationships in the, the power profile table is like, so there's, you know, someone's got like cat three threshold power and they're a cat three, but they got like a wicked good sprint. It's like borderline world class. And you're like, you're thinking about that and you're like, this kid's 22. Well, if we can get his power, his threshold power up, he can hang in a professional race and then get him to the last 200 meters and unleash that wicked sprint. You know, this kid's got potential. So it gives you a good way to approach helping that athlete achieve his goals, whether it's turn pro or win field sprints. The power profile table, on the other hand, like Neil being anaerobic and doing triathlon you know it's like tom zerbel his power profile is like world-class time trialer cat four sprint and then it's like okay well let's not bother with the sprint part tom you know let's just, let's concentrate on your strengths over here and that's what the power profile table uses i don't really test for those numbers because i'll just say hey here's a here's a an anaerobic workout we need to work on your anaerobic capacity I want you to do two sets of five by one minute on, one minute off, full gas, hard as you can. And then I'll analyze the data. And they did the last couple of intervals almost as good as the first. And they're telling me that they saw God and they had to collapse in the, the ditch after the workout. And they want to fire me. And they hate my guts. And then they text me this next morning. Sorry, I was mad at you. And <laughs> that's a great workout. And then next time I'm going to be like... Let's do four sets of, no, let's do three sets of four. Let's do a little bit more. Let's do a little bit more. Let's extend that anaerobic capacity out as much as we can within the time that we have before your goal event. So that I kind of like use the pro progression of the workouts to expand that like anaerobic capacity, for example. Same way with VO2 workouts and, and threshold as well. My philosophy on threshold training is never have the athlete do more threshold than they'll face in the race. So you got to know the power demands of the race. So, so just I, a question for you. When you're giving riders like 
VO2 workouts. Mm -hmm. What are you, are you basing their, their target power for that interval set off of their power duration, like their best five minute in a race? Or are you saying, I want you to do this at 120% of FTP or full gas, just full gas, full gas, give it to me in between your ears, uh, practice how you want to race. It's a sports psych. I, and, and some athletes can drill it 130%. Some athletes are struggling 115. So you analyze the data and you're like, all right, this is something we need to work on, so forth. So, and the other thing is, well, what if we didn't have their FTP set right? What if we didn't have their five minute power set right? Right. And I, I kind of have a response to both of you because, Frank, I tend to be with you of what we want to see is real world situations and use that to, to really look at the athlete. So I love the fact that you're saying, let's, let's look at what they're doing in races, because that's where you get the benchmark. Um, and I find sometimes athletes get too concerned about what am I doing in my intervals and, and looking for their strengths and weaknesses there. At the end of the day, you go, well, how are you performing? How are you doing on Saturday? Uh, so I love that you, you say that. Um, but I'll admit, when you look at that continuous power duration curve, the one concern I've always had with that is it's taking people's best numbers ever. So it's the best 20 minute they've ever done. It's the best five second they've ever done. And I know in WKO, you can, you can narrow it down to what, you know, what were my best in the last 30 days? Or, uh, I, I know some athletes tend to look at, well, let's look at the last two years so I can get all my best numbers. And my concern is always then basing your training off of what was the, you know, that amazing day or that incredible race that you had. Um, and so somebody sees a 20 minute power that's really 30, 40 watts above what they can actually train at and they try to train at it and kill themselves. What's, what's, uh, is there a concern with somebody using a, a power duration curve like that, that's showing them all their best numbers and basing their training off of that? Because again, it's showing their, their best, not their typical. Okay. Best over the course of a year, not useful. Best on any one day, like what y'all are doing in your <laughs> testing, or if you just like, I mean, if it's like a, if you get a road race that hits all four physiological time frames and look at the best of that and the athlete did go full gas for all four of those, that would be a great piece of data. And yeah, then you could use the power duration curve. I don't use the power duration curve. Um, I think a lot of people that do get caught up in just playing around with numbers and want to like, it's all sorts of stereotypes about what can I do? What, what number can I hit? And I don't find that very useful in training. And I'll just revert back. Maybe I'm old school, just go full gas, go as hard as you can. That's how it works. And let's see what the data is after you go full gas. And I love that. And that's, so power duration curves, they are useful in terms of pacing. Hey, I got a 12 minute time trial. Let's look at your power duration curve to maybe give you some parameters of maybe how to start the first two minutes. But honestly, after those first two minutes, it's just full gas. Is this answering your question? Yeah, no, I just was interested in yeah. getting your perspective. What I find really interesting is we had, um, we were talking with Ned Overend two days ago. Oh, cool. And he just started out by saying, I'm not sure I could be able to help you at all because <laughs> I've never used a heart rate monitor or a power meter. Yeah, deadly Nedley. And here is a guy that is absolutely. He uses, he uses a lot of Strava, interestingly enough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he goes for KOMs still, and that's how uh -huh. he trains a lot. You know, that's not all, but he, he yeah, it's am yeah. he's amazing. In that he is um, not using science, he's using perceived effort 
almost exclusively. Mm -hmm. But he did describe something very similar to what you're describing, which he said he uses different climbs of different lengths. Mm -hmm. And he knows with each climb, he basically is trying to take that climb as hard as he can. But if it's a five-minute climb, he's going to take it harder than a 20-minute climb. So he just knows how to pace that climb. So he's pushing himself to his limit. Yeah, that, that, I mean, I think if if it's work, it's working for Ned. <laughs> yeah, not everybody him. can uh, be yeah so skilled. I mean, he's so in tune with his body because he's been doing it for what thirty years now. You know, world champion pedigree. Probably yeah. more like forty-five years. Yeah, he's okay. sixty-two. Golly, yeah. Ned used to kick my ass when he was fifty, and I was like in my thirties. So, but but you know, I mean, going for Strava, I mean, is if you were to choose a five second Strava segment and a one minute and a five minute and a 20 minute, you probably could do the same 40 P test on Strava that you could on, on the, on the trainer. If you just found the right segments to go for it. Mm -hmm. Right. Hey Trevor, have you heard of this life insurance thing? Do they have that up in Canada? Chris, we are not that backwards. We do have insurance up in Canada. Just the other week, I rode my dog sled over to the insurance place to get my insurance. Thank you very much. Oh, nice. It must be snowing up there, huh? Oh, no. Yeah, it's summer. We only have three feet on the ground. <laughs> gotcha. Well, you put the wheels on the dog sled and it goes anywhere, really. Exactly. Cool. Well, hey. Those were the worst Canada <laughs> jokes. I'm now making fun of myself. <laughs> so, Chris... Tell us about Health IQ. Health IQ is this life insurance company that specializes in healthy, active people like cyclists, runners, swimmers, triathletes. They're able to give us... Dog sled runners? Yeah, I think that might qualify. So they're able to give us favorable rates on life insurance, and they have a special website just for Fast Talk listeners. www.healthiq.com slash fasttalk. Head over there, submit race results, screen grabs of Strava, Map my run account, map my dog sled ride, whatever you've got. Any proof that you are indeed a regular cyclist and you'll get a better quote on your life insurance, all through Health IQ. But going back to your, your test, quickly for our listeners, I actually personally do your test quite frequently. You start with a couple five-second sprints mm -hmm. that you take, and you have to do all this within an hour. We make it a lot of yeah. fun. Uh, so you do a couple five-second sprints. Then you do a, a five-minute, as hard as you can, effort. Then a short rest, then a 20-minute all-out effort. Then a short rest, and then a one-minute all-out effort. And I have certainly seen athletes do this, and they complain, well, that, you know, when I did a 20-minute fresh, I was 20 watts higher. When I did a one-minute fresh, I was 100 watts higher. So I hate your test. But I think your argument would be this is probably more realistic. Yeah. And so what – I mean the, the, the testing protocol that we're using that Neil has been using for a long time, you know, he developed it while he was working at the BCSM, you know, just seeing lots of athletes coming into the lab. A lot of, a lot of you know, athletes would come from all over the world to get tested there. And then, okay, cool, they have this one data point from one day of testing with him. Well, you can't just expect them to fly back every six months to do the testing again. So what he set out to do was get lab results from people and then find some protocol that those same riders could go out and do on the road that will match up as closely as you can with 
the lab results they were getting out of like a VO2 max test and a, and a lactate threshold test. That's how this specific protocol came up. And it's not just about doing those four efforts in, in an hour. It's the, the amount of rest between them is also very important. Having only six minutes of recovery between the five minute and 20 minute is what makes that 20 minute a much closer representation to your lab-based threshold, or at least the lab-based threshold that Neil would give you using his, you know, protocol of a one millimole jump followed by one and a half millimole jump. And and same thing, the very short rest from the 20 minute effort into the one minute effort, it's, it's making sure that the amount of recovery you're getting before that one minute effort is, is something that is accounted for and, and controllable. And so one of the issues we have when people, when we have riders go out and do this on the road, or if we're working with someone remotely and it's the summertime and they don't want to jump on a trainer, it's very difficult to find sometimes good areas to, to do that, where you can make sure you have a five minute max effort and then have very little recovery. And within six minutes, you're started again on a 20 minute effort. So in the, the way that, you know, things, we order things, you, you get more information than just what those numbers get. So the greatest example of this in, in our test is the one minute at the very end. It's the last effort you do. And it's, it's always going to be, since you've already done five second max sprint, you've already done a five minute max effort, you've done a 20 minute max effort. By the time that one minute rolls around, you're not fresh. You're not going to pull out your all time best one minute power. The issue becomes, okay, that's great. If you can do 700 Watts for one minute once good for you. But if you're looking at doing say 30, 30 seconds on 30 seconds off, if you can do 700 watts for three of those and then it drops to 650 and then 600 and then 550, then, you know, what value is that one minute standalone number giving you to prescribe training? For the, the test we have at that end, you get a sense of someone's ability to recover. They've done multiple max efforts and then you're still asking them to produce power anaerobically. The, the whole, the protocol there is, it's, it's really specific. This was, you know, Neil's had a lot of different variations of this and this is the one we settled on so if you were to do these same if you were to do this ride in reverse do one minute first and then 20 minute and five minute sure they're all max efforts but the results you get are going to be completely different and for this for the workouts you get in the sufferfest they would be kind of garbage you wouldn't be able to the the targets would be all over the place because those weren't you know accounted for correctly yeah it's repeatable that that's what makes mm -hmm. a good test if it's repeatable mm-hmm uh, then you're apples to apples. You, know, you can't. You don't want to do apples to oranges. The other thing I, I like to that all of you have brought up at one point or another that was actually going to be one of my points is I don't think there is a perfect system, and I have seen athletes take even the best tests and and fool themselves into saying the test says something it doesn't say, and I think there is an important part with with, with coaches like all of you to be able to take that data and say here here's what it means. Yeah, I mean, continuing along those lines, I mean, I think FTP is alive and well. Um, I think what it's important to remember is training specificity. You got your FTP, but you're still going to train specific to the type of event you're racing. Like if you're a criterium racer, you're not going to do FTP style workouts. You know, you're going to do anaerobic work, a lot of sprints, neuromuscular work. And so, but I still like for those riders to have their FTP. And uh, that gets us in the ballpark, and then we do full gas uh, interval workouts. You know, similarly for what Neil was mentioning with uh, Taylor Finney, of course he would never do two by twenty. You know, FTP is not that important. I still would kind of like to know it, or at least so we could have 
uh, range for when he was doing like his zones two, three, and four sweet spot. I'm sure Neil did, but yeah, you're really concentrating on his four minute VO2 max power. That's the training specificity. So I think, you know, what you guys are doing is fantastic. And I think it's the way you, it all comes down to the way you design the training. You know, what are you going to tell the athlete to do? And it, it's, yes, there's a gazillion different ways of testing. Really the secret sauce is how you're going to take that results and design a training plan and, and coach them to achieve their, their goals. Before we launch into our take-homes, let's hear from a fourth opinion. Dr. Stephen Chung is the author of the recently published book, Cycling Science, which includes chapters from some of the biggest names in the field. Chung also works with Exert, an online training tool for analyzing your data. Like Apex and Sufferfest, Exert believes in several key metrics and not just FTP. However, like Frank, Chung and the folks at Exert believe in using real training and race data to determine those numbers. So I'm sure you have seen this this debate going on um, about question of whether FTP is dead, meaning should we be creating the profile of a, a rider completely based off of FTP, um, which is the way it has been for a while, or is it more complex than that? You are working with a, a really fascinating product um, that we will have more about soon on, on the website called Exert. And I know you have a, an opinion on this question of whether FTP is dead. Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, the discussion is really healthy in terms of making people really think, what have I been basing my training on? Now, certainly this whole idea of needing more than just FTP is something that is built into the entire kind of DNA of what we have been doing with Exert. And we really base it on three different parameters, build your fitness signature on, on these parameters in real time based on your power output from every single ride. It's really a, a threshold power there is then also a what we call HIE or high intensity energy, which some have have compared it to an anaerobic work capacity. How much work can you do with your anaerobic reserves? And then there's also the peak power, how much power you can sustain uh, over one second. So we really approach it from that perspective of every single ride rather than having to do. Uh, specific testing for it, our algorithms allow us to extract your peak power, your high intensity energy, and your threshold power from uh, the specific power outputs of that ride. And so we've always been a proponent that it is not just about FTP, not just about um, a single factor. We strongly believe that there are multiple kind of components of your fitness signature. So yeah, I'm, I'm a full supporter of reopening or opening that debate. It is really an interesting debate. And I actually do. It does seem like most of the tools are, are heading that way. I know you've been there for a while. What I find interesting is when you talked about your three points, the lowest intensity one was that FTP. And I've seen that in other tools as well. Is there a value of finding lower points. So I'm particular, I'm thinking of what you might think uh, refer to as VT1 or aerobic threshold. Do you think that should be part of the profile as well? 
yes, absolutely. I the problem with kind of an FTP as even the lowest level is that yeah, there's still a huge continuum underneath it. Most of the time, we're not training at averaging FTP or, or threshold power in the exert model, we're usually riding much below it. So actually, our latest iteration of our algorithms have been able to extract what we call a, a lower threshold power. And the model for that really is the what would happen if you were completely bonked? What if all of your kind of, in a sense, um, carbohydrate fueled activity was removed. What is the highest level of sustained power output we have? So we've also been able to extract this, again, lower threshold power LTP. And and we've had athletes start using it with quite a bit of success to base their, kind of especially their base period around, uh, putting in as much time as possible at around that LTP and really building up a lot of volume that way and building up a lot of kind of training foundation at that level. So absolutely, to come back to your question, uh, I think it's even more complex than necessarily just um, you know three model signature. And uh, so that's what we've been working on with this uh, LTP idea. In our, our conversation um, at the table, uh, mm-hmm. one of the things we brought up is, is the issue of creating these profiles using the, the best one minute you've ever done and the best 20 minute you've ever done and the best five second you've ever done because that's probably not a true profile of you. So uh, I really like that you say that there's this more of a real time that, that's going to adjust with where your fitness is, is actually at. At least that's uh, what I believe I'm yep. hearing from you. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. When you are completely fresh, yes, you can bang out this terrific one minute effort maybe, but does that, does that ideal fresh one minute effort really reflect your, you know, day to day kind of capacity? And also, does it reflect your ability to punch out that one minute at the end of a long race? So, um, you know, while there is certainly can be value in doing that testing, um, you know, the challenge really is, well, what can you do with it? Does it become a really solid, valid uh, benchmark for your day-to-day training? So I think that's the other question that you have to ask with with these models that require the, the testing, the specific kind of idealized testing protocols. So after having this big discussion about whether FTP is dead, um, the different ways we can build a person's profile, um, some of the history of how long this science has been around, it seems like a lot of it is stuff that um, people have been using in different ways for, for decades fine-tuning it, working with their athletes to, to make it appropriate for those, those particular individuals. But there's got to be something new here. What, what, from both of your perspectives, what is new about the science? I mean, in terms of the work we've done with the, the Sufferfest in, in transitioning our sort of ideology into their, their app, is that the, the trainer market and people doing workouts on trainers has just exploded. When you have Trainer Road, you have Zwift, you have Sufferfest, you have a lot of people going in and doing their workouts on a trainer. 
a lot of them just want to do it on their own. And again, there's been a limitation in terms of all those platforms. It's okay, we need to be basing these targets off of something. FTP is pretty straightforward. It's a simple number. You can have a repeatable test and do it again and again. But that really limits, okay, if you're if you're taking someone's FTP and then prescribing the same workout to a thousand different people, even if 500 of them say they have the same FTP, they're not going to be able to do the same workout. They're not going to be able to produce the same power for a one minute on, one minute off type effort. And so... I mean, the, in terms of the, the science of like the, the rationale behind having different, different personalized metrics of like a five minute power, one minute power to set training target targets, isn't in itself new. The, the thing that we've worked towards is just making that easily accessible to at like anyone who can, you know, has a trainer and some way to measure power. So as, I mean, as Frank's saying, and as every good coach does and knows, like for the real best training response, you need to have someone experienced driving the ship, you know, looking at someone's data and saying, okay, this is where you should do the training or this next time you do this workout, this is where we're going to go. All, all we've tried to do is, is give that sort of greater specificity of workouts to a wider audience. And so making sure that anyone who wants to get a good one hour workout in they're not going to start it and have the potential of never finishing the thing, or they're not going to get to the end of it and say, well, that was a waste of an hour because it wasn't hard enough. And so it's, it's really more introducing this, this level of coaching that's been around for a long time as we've thoroughly discussed, but just giving access to that to a greater range of people. So it's not the profiles that are, are new or different. It's how you're applying those to help people train, especially people who don't have access to, to a coach. Yes. Although, in the, in that sense, the the way we do rider profiling is different than what has been out in the past. Specifically, because our protocol, you know, you can't use Andy Kogan's table for rider profiling because again, those are absolute best right. efforts of all times, and that's not. You look at someone's one minute from our test and throw it on that chart, and everyone's going to say, "Wow, I'm terrible at one minute efforts." Yep, um, and I've done that. <laughs> but that's not what we're looking at, and and again, even you know, looking at it's what we've done for the rider profiling is make everything relative to that rider. So again, if you have, if you have two riders who can do a thousand watts for five seconds, but, and they weigh the same on Kogan's chart, they have the same sprint ability. But if one of them has an FTP of 200 watts and one of them has an FTP of 400 watts, the person, the rider with the 200 watt FTP is, you know, they're more of a sprinter than the rider at 400 watts because, you know, 800 of that watts has to come from instantaneous power. Whereas the person with 400 watt FTP, like only 600 of it does. So, you know, we prefer for the rider profiling to really look just at the individual, how they compare to themselves and not throwing them up on an existing chart where, you know, a lot of average riders are going to say, wow, I'm really low on this chart. Like I, I don't think I've ever cracked into a cat four for my five second power. And you still have me beat. (laughs) (laughs) Frank? (laughs) Well, I, I'm not sure if there's anything new per se. I mean, I haven't like seen the the landmark research paper come out that says some some something. You know, I, I think Mac and Neil have introduced a new protocol for testing, which is cool, and it's you know they're using it to work for their athletes. So so there's that, but and there's there's always been the power profile chart, and I've never really used it that much, other than. 
like if you, I'm never going to have like an athlete go out and do their power profile testing um, just because it's a it's not the real world. It's not like the kind of power they can make in the in the races. So uh, other than the sensational headline of the FTP is dead, I don't think anything is quite new other than you. It stimulated a discussion and some thought amongst everyone to, you know, examine how they are measuring performance or how they are testing for it. And would you say that from that discussion and that thought process, you're going to change anything that you're doing? Have you learned anything today? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I might tinker around with, uh, you know, I'd like to try the the 40P in an hour. I'm not going to have an athlete test on the trainer. I always find that they have trouble making the same power on the trainer as they do out on the road. Uh, it's a whole rolling inertia thing. I call it the trainer effect. Um, so there's that, introdu- that that variable that's introduced into the um, into that. Also, when I work with an athlete, like a, like a Zerbal versus the Cat Three at the Wicket Sprint, we didn't even do any sprint training at, at all, or you know any. Well, we did a little bit of anaerobic capacity work, but I don't need to know those numbers to design because I'm going to be concentrating on the designing a, a training plan specific to his goals. Um, we'll work on his VO2. We'll work on primarily threshold. We'll get in a little bit of anaerobic capacity in there, but probably won't be doing too many sprints. So I, I don't need to use that in in their testing protocol. Similarly, if I'm working with a, a crit racer, we can just, it's really nice when you know that they're just focusing on crits because you can just toss threshold training out the window. Not to say that they don't do it. You, you use that to build up like base. But when you're getting into the specificity phase, there's no threshold in there at, at all. And it, that's nice because then it, you can design the training plan even more specific. So to have tested that is kind of, for me, I think that's just a waste of time. So I don't even go there. So I think, I guess what I've just realized in talking is I'm going to design a method of testing specific for that athlete and his goals based on the power demands of those races. Just one quick um, point to that when you're, when you're talking about there, there is a, for pretty much everyone I've seen, there's a difference between their indoor, their power production on trainer and, and outdoors. And, and we actually had a, a user who their 20 minute indoor, they did the same. They did the test outside. Their 20 minute power was spot on exactly 242 inside and outside. Mm-hmm. And then each effort that got longer, there's a proportional greater difference, which is pretty standard for what we're seeing. Um, but the, the key thing is if, okay, you can do a thousand Watts outside for five seconds and you can only do 800 Watts inside for five seconds. Okay. For these numbers you're getting from our test, they're going into workouts you're going to do on the trainer. So if it's taking, say, a workout, you know, a sprint workout is taking 90% of your five-second power as this is the target you should be shooting for, if you put in that 1,000 watts you do outside, okay, it's going to come up and say, do, do 900 watts for five seconds inside. But if you can only do 800 on your trainer, that's not a realistic goal. That being said, we have all our athletes that we work with that we give training outside. We have them do the same tests outside too. So we get their outside numbers versus inside numbers they really don't like us during those time periods when you do two tests like that. But, you know, again, it's all, it's all relative. So both to uh, Frank and Mac, are there any take homes you want to address for the folks out there listening? Just the simple, this is what I believe this is what you should have learned from today. 
uh, I would say take-homes are three things. Repeatability, execution, keep it simple, and test specific to your goal event. I don't know if I can do bullet points like that. Nice and concise. <laughs> nice and concise. I, I like that. that. <laughs> 20 seconds he did it in. So do I get his other 40 seconds? <laughs> yeah, so from, from my perspective, the takeaway of this, this whole conversation is whatever testing protocol you use, you, you just really need to make sure it just matches up with the training methodology that, that goes along with it. I think that will solve a lot of gripes people have with with any protocol with any model no this isn't super new stuff different duration efforts to set different intensities for for different durations that's not that's not really groundbreaking um the the difference is is that you know now we're giving access to that knowledge that coaches have had for 15 years we're giving that knowledge to thousands of people who before really did think that ftp was the only thing that mattered the number of people on Trainer Road, on Zwift, on Sufferfest, who the only thing they think that matters is FTP is, is kind of, it, is, it surprised me when I first started working with them. Coaches, we have our own little bubble of everyone kind of knows what they're talking about and knows what they're doing. And you kind of forget that there's a whole population out there that doesn't have the same background knowledge you do. And we really take it for granted. And so this is just kind of our first step at trying to kind of spread that knowledge to a, to a greater audience and make sure that they're getting the most out of their training. I think my take-homes, and I wish I could be as concise and well-explained as Frank. I think he just threw all of us down. Yeah, I think you were spot on by saying that in some ways these concepts are not new, but what is new is how available it is and, and how sophisticated some of the information that's available to, to everybody now. Um, and I guess my advice to the listeners is learn yourself. That's what I really got out of this. Learn your strengths, learn your weaknesses, learn what you need to work on. And as you said, especially for your target event and just focusing on that FTP would be a mistake. Uh, that might very well be the thing that you really need to, to fix, but make sure you, you look at all the different sides of your strengths and weaknesses. You can do that through numbers. You can do that through feel. You can do that through saying, well, in a race, if I'm in a breakaway, I can ride everybody off my wheels. I think my FTP is pretty good, but we hit a one-minute climb, everybody drops me. So maybe my VO2 max isn't very good. There's a lot of different ways to find it. Uh, but make sure you're, you're looking at all that information and interpreting it and, and training accordingly. The only thing I would personally add to that is be careful about turning yourself too much into a number. Um, I love that Frank keeps talking about the, the feel of it and just go as hard as you can. On the flip side, if you are never, ever looking at the numbers, maybe you want to consider them because you are getting some really good information out of them nowadays. I'm not going to even attempt to talk. <laughs> Chris has some wonderful points, but he has lost his voice. Don't, so you'll never get them. You can go by field. You don't need any numbers. That's my take home. The net over and method. The net over and method. I occasionally use my Strava, but... Uh, one take home I would, I do have, it comes from my effort the other day. Numbers are meant to be hit, not necessarily beaten. So if you have a target in your mind or on your screen in front of you, don't think of it as something to beat all the time. Like setting a new KOM, this is a target to be hit. 
not exceeded because if you do that, you'll go into the red, you might explode. Talk about when you beat Seth by 10 seconds at the start of <laughs> yeah, a 30 that's, minute. That's about, that's what about what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Dial it back. Dial it back. Sorry, Neil doesn't have a, a take home for us, but he had to jump out of here to go pick up his daughter. And I'm sure he would have had some amazing things to say, but uh, we'll just have to catch him next time. That was another episode of Fast Talk. If you got anything out of this episode, we hope you see that when you, you look at these debates and these hot topics, often there's a lot of subtlety to it. So I was personally fascinated by the conversation, and uh, it gave me a lot to think about on both sides. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk and iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. While you're there, check out our sister podcast, The Velo News Podcast, which covers news about the week in cycling. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash velonews and on Twitter at twitter.com slash velonews. Fast Talk is a joint production between Velonews and Connor Coaching. The thoughts and opinions expressed at Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Chris Case, who I think is lying in the corner right now, coughing his lungs out. <clears throat> there he is. Matt Casson, Neil Henderson, and Frank Overton. I'm Trevor Connor. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.